Well, somehow we managed to start off even later than last week. I suspect it's because both of us are just work from home and don't have follow up yeah. engagements. And previously, when we no had to agenda. squeeze in something before, you know, one of us had to leave the house, there was like a deadline. Like we had to get started. But now that we know that both of us are just going to be sitting at home anyway, we just push it back. It's super problematic because you just don't work through things as quickly. Like everything gets drawn out. Because you're just always at home. Yeah, I know. Well, I have no intention of leaving the house. No, me neither. Not not going to the gym. Like, can't, well, you can't go to the gym. There is nothing to go to. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and discussing important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Should I go first or you first? Um, good question. I don't know. Mine's positive. And yours is... Let's go with mine. Let's go with mine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Prior to picking this subject, I actually hit up Sharice on the side. I'm like, oh, is this too repetitive uh, relative to the topic we, I did last week? And Sharice reassured me that, no, it wasn't too repetitive. It, it actually carries on some of the same points and or discussions that we talked about in last week's episode, which was in reference to the Anna Leibowitz cover she shot of Simone Biles, the... I'm going to say this properly. The the best gymnast of all time. <laughs> yes. For Vogue. Uh, and it talked a lot about how Simone was portrayed relative to her skin tone and how the photos were deemed to be unflattering. If you guys are interested in that, maybe go back and have a listen if you haven't already. That is episode 129. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think you need to have that context to make this episode today relevant, but I do think there's some shared uh insights that might be interesting yeah so anyways my topic i'm gonna loosely use this subject that i assigned to it because it pulls from a few different sources but it's the racial bias of photography technology and terminology so one thing i've been really interested as of late has been just the scientific process behind film photography and how film is developed both how it works as technology and how it's developed i'm still trying to find my way through it just like you know googling questions very specific questions that might arise and just learning more about the process the thing that actually was most fascinating to me was this video i came across that was from 2015 by vox called color film was built for white people here's what it did to dark skin which is a very sort of clickbaity title like i feel this was maybe peak clickbait in around 2015 where they just chose stuff that like the curiosity gap was there you know, everything that checks the boxes. But in the sub five minute video, they discuss the original approach towards color calibration 
of skin tones. Maybe that's not the right way of putting it. It's more like, how did they calibrate the color so that it matched the skin tones of the subject? Well, and it was they, pretty inno- innocuous. Like I watched the video. I thought it was good. I think what you're trying to say is that when color film was first created, people naturally started thinking about, okay, how can we make humans look good on color film? And, and accurate. And accurate. Accurate and good. You know, how do we make people look accurate to how they look in real life when portrayed in photos? And also, how do we make the color look good? And they used a white woman as the reference subject. Yes. So that white woman was part of the Shirley card. So obviously this is a podcast. You don't have a visual in front of you. But the card features generally sort of a mid-body portrait of a woman. And there's several color blocks beneath it. And basically you use this as a way to determine the accuracy of the skin tone. And Allegedly, Shirley was a employee at Kodak Eastman, which was the creator of film. Kodak is naturally in the news for other things as of the last 24 hours. Are you familiar with the Kodak resurgence last 24 hours? No. What? Oh, so, so basically Kodak received like a near $1 billion deal to produce anti-COVID-19 drugs. In the last 24 hours? Yeah. Like Why Kodak? Exactly, right? I mean, I'm I Wait, suspect I'm so confused. Weeks. Oh my gosh, sorry. I tuned out for like a split second, to be honest with you. And I was looking at your notes. And then you said something that I have like no context for. Kodak yeah, so got... I'll send you the link. I'll talk about it very briefly because I feel like your, in, your, your interest has been piqued. I just don't understand. Anyways, my joke is that I suspect in two weeks time, you're going to hear about a bunch of Republicans that are... Gonna get busted for insider trading. Anyways. Oh, uh, Kodak. Totally. Sorry, they didn't receive a deal. They received a $765 million loan from the US government. They're entering the realm of pharmaceuticals. Okay. And, I have like this complete look of bewilderment on my face, but sure. Yeah. And then Kodak stocks rocketed. I'm I'm referring to this article, rocketed, rocketed two thousand percent. So yeah, Crazy. Bunch of people made money off of it. A lot of People on Robinhood, which is an investment app for, let's just call it for millennials. I think that's like kind of their target demo. Um, Both you and yeah. I are millennials. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying like, okay, you know. you've said that with derision. Okay, sorry. Back to the subject at hand. Shirley cards made in the mid 20th century. I guess whenever the advent of film really started taking off. Uh, 1940s. Color film. 1950s. Color film. Yes. Color film. Commercial color film. I don't actually fully understand how you use a Shirley card. I don't know if this is a dumb question. But like, do that's you a, just look at it and compare great, it to your photo? That's a great question because I don't know either. Oh, okay. Good. I was like, because like, yeah. I know photographers now also have cards to establish what's white. Yeah. Lots of question marks in these sentences. But my assumption is that when you were working with a film camera, like the tech wasn't as good so that you could be calibrating like while looking through a film camera. So basically the Shirley card is kind of like a color card. It's like a reference card. So for those unfamiliar with how uh, film chemistry works, there are three layers. And on each layer, they're processing red, blue, and green. So what's interesting about the science behind it all is that when you develop film with various chemicals, there are certain colors they don't handle very well. 
So these include reds, browns, and black tones. So what it means is that the effect of rendering is not accurate because they're not really trying to ensure accuracy in this color range. So white tones, like white skin tones, are generally fine, but darker or non-white skin tones are often inaccurate or muddied. And what's interesting is that what pushed the industry, the film industry that is, to change were other adjacent industries that were requiring accuracy in their colors, but were non-human related. So furniture brands and chocolate makers needed greater accuracy because, for example, the tone of their lounge chair or their uh, dinner table wasn't accurate, as well as the inability to differentiate between, say, milk chocolate and dark chocolate because they just didn't look right. I mean, it's so interesting because basically, even though we're talking about this from a racial angle, really, it's about the treatment of color in film. So if you were trying to photograph anything that wasn't that white light spectrum, you know, if you were trying to yeah. show detail in dark colors, you, you couldn't do that and didn't yeah. have to be skin dark colored yeah. anything. And then in addition to that, right around the time that BET and Oprah Winfrey show started to pick up a lot of steam and become very popular, it also required companies to develop solutions for more accurate skin tone representation. What I also found was interesting from an NPR article was that famous photographer Luke Goddard was asked to do a short film for the Mozambique government, but he ultimately said no because he felt that film stock didn't sufficiently capture the accuracy of the subjects. Mm. So one thing I, I think is worth understanding is why is this topic interesting in terms of accurate representation of color? And once again, I'm going to refer to the NPR piece that features uh, photographer Sarita McFadden. And she says, I think it matters because we're talking about a saturation of images of darker skinned people that somehow we've accepted in our popular culture that kind of diminishes our humanity. And we're in an era where we're seeing a wider representation of black and brown life, particularly in American life. We've seen so many images of black bodies denigrated or rendered as criminals or rendered in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect a kind of normalcy. We see in stock images, whether it's in commercial advertising or on television, We just see images of a normalcy of living and existing that seems to center around whiteness and shows the full variety and humanity of white folks or of lighter skinned people. And to have to always account for my humanity in situations where people would deal with me one-on-one, but the images they were exposed to said something very different about the kind of community and people I come from. It matters. So just a heads up, this article actually dropped, not recently, but everything she said is very relevant for today, right? Yeah. I mean, this reminds me of Tonal. Yeah. A lot. So Tonal is this stock photo company started by Joshua Kissy and Karen Okonkwo. Joshua Kissy, who we've done a making story on, who's your personal friend yeah. and Karen Okonkwo. We've done stories with Karen too. Yeah, we've done stories with Karen. I was just about to say, and Karen spoke at UC 2018. Anyway, I'm a big yeah. fan of Tonal. They started this stock photo company exactly to serve the purposes that yeah. Sarita McFadden is talking about, where it's just showing people of color in all of their humanity and all of yeah. these different ways, exactly the way we always see white people in, in these yeah. just sort of like default situations. And what's interesting is that this article was released in 2014. So it's been a minute. Like, I think it's interesting how fast and slow everything moves, right? Because this is a theme that was relevant over six years ago. Yeah. 
and still exists. But I think what what's also important is to understand that at the end of the day, I think accurate color representation is is super important because I mean we kind of saw what happened in the Simone piece in terms of like the the spread, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think that when you start entering this realm of like color representation, I think you end up needing to be very careful because of both the sort of journalistic accuracy as well as the sort of like narrative editorial accuracy. And those things don't always need to be the same, but I think there has to be a very clear reasoning behind decisions made and or like understanding, hey, you know what? This photo I took of this person is not accurate to their skin tone. And what is the sort of like personal outcome of that if you are the subject of the photo? Yeah, I was just thinking again about our conversation about Simone Biles and Annie Leibovitz and how we both of us felt that Annie Leibovitz made an editorial decision with color and composition and styling and all of these things um, and, and the color being a part of that greater narrative. But maybe the reason why there was also such this big backlash to those photos is because people feel like there hasn't been enough of the accurate representation. So even if Annie Leibowitz's editorialization made sense, they, people feel like we haven't even had enough of just accurate, straight up skin tone representation. And Mm -hmm. that's like what people are still hungry for to see more of. And then the second part of my piece talks about the terminology and definitions used in photography. There's one part that I'm much more clear on. The other one I'm trying to remember and recall from memory. So it's kind of loose in the second part. But the first part is the use of the word master and slave. So when you use flashes, you have a master and a slave where the master can trigger an off-camera flash, which is often called a slave. And last month, there were a few sort of op-eds that surfaced where photo blogs were talking about the usage of this word combo. And it was pushing companies to really rethink the usage of these two words. And But what's interesting is that the usage of master and slave actually has been removed from the lexicon of brands like Canon and Nikon as of, you know, three to 10 plus years ago. And this is before any sort of public backlash. It just so happened the timing was right. So in the case of Canon, around three years ago, they had started to pull and remove the use of master and slave in reference to their flashes. Fujifilm was even earlier sometime in the 2000s. And I think it's a little bit hard to pinpoint an exact date because you might have a product in the range, it's still in production, and it won't really be removed from sort of the vocabulary of that brand until that product is discontinued. So it's kind of hard in that regard. It's more like you can make a stand that, hey, anything going forward will not use these terms. This actually fits in perfectly because, well, I mean, I was tracking this, right? And then there was also people that were bringing to light the, the words we use to describe various acts in photography. So it's like capturing a photo, right? It's like taking a photo. When in reality, is it something to consider on the flip side where it's like you're creating a photo? Mm. And I don't really have as much of a point of view. And it's also because it's a little bit loose in my mind because I'm trying to refer um, from reference. But I think back to the original argument around master versus slave, the perspective I have on it, I think is very contextually driven. And I think that master on its own, slave on its own, have their own sort of respective definitions. But I'm 
trying to like formulate an opinion on what it means to to use them together or always have them very near to one another and if context itself is like something we should be very acutely aware of because master itself is like you know it's at its core like you could be a a master chef right or a master class like that's not necessarily a negative connotation there's a positive connotation around that and likewise like slave i think is more about the representation of subservience not necessarily in a negative way either it's more that like you're reliant on something else to make something happen so uh, so i'm asking you like is there a blind spot in that argument or do you think that there's them there's been some sort of because of the political and cultural sensitivity that we live in right now that this is a topic that is coming to light this is so often been my answer in response to actions like this which is I feel fine about people doing this, but I don't think that this is the main issue that is worth fighting over. That I think there are way more substantial things to fight over, like voter repression, just pulling something out of the hat. You know what I mean? Like, I think there are bigger topics that I would like to see action taken that aren't about word choice. And as far as hurtful words, I also don't think master slave in a tech context is the most hurtful that we get. I think we we much more casually use other types of slurs or that racism is embedded in our language in other ways that we're not as cognizant of. And probably what what's much harder to do and is not corporate driven is actually the language we use on a daily basis. And I do think that slave can be a hurtful word, but I think of it as more hurtful in our regular conversations than I do like on a camera, like in that context, like you're saying, you know, like I can imagine it's possible that when you're talking in a friend group and you might use slave in a way that's meant to be light, but could be, you could have picked another word. Like maybe that's not the best word choice, you know, but in tech, like I don't, again, like I think it's fine to do this if tech companies want to. And I put in a reference for you at the bottom about the usage of master and slave in coding language. Yeah. So it's also in a lot of coding language, like, Python, just one example. And a lot of these different coding related companies like GitHub have said, we're going to phase it out. You know, we're going to use other types of language instead. And one thing about coding that I think makes sense is because master slave is actually slightly ambiguous, is not the most directly understandable language. Like one of their replacements is primary and secondary, which Uh is actually way easier to understand. Like if you're learning about something and is totally neutral. So I'm I'm a fan of that because it's not just about like yeah. identity politics, but it's also it, it is genuinely easier to use, yeah. in my opinion. So I think everything you've brought up is like, generally speaking, pretty interesting in terms of the, the grand scheme of things. I I guess I kind of am in agreement that of all the things that have arisen from this like is this where you 
dedicate your energy? Probably not. But there's another place where I think is interesting is the use of the word marijuana. And this is something I learned from Hawaii Mike, uh, a story we did for a concept he does called Chef for Hire that does a lot of CBD and uh, cannabis-infused cooking events and dinners. What was interesting was that marijuana has a very negative connotation based around how it's introduced as almost like a made-up word to represent drugs that were of, and in many ways, like a, almost a, a Spanish origin, right? Like the etymology of it is supposed to relate back to like uh, Hispanics. And I wonder, that itself has a very pointed and direct history that can look back in time on a moment versus I've obviously master and slave is a little bit more ambiguous as you mentioned. So I think yeah. that it's not a no words mean nothing kind of thing. I'm oh, sorry. I mean, of course not because yeah. like language is so interesting. One thing that's so true about language is that it just changes constantly and it's hard to nail down what a word means because it is different for different people in different situations and the way we use it now is probably not going to be the way we use it a year from now so it's hard at any moment to definitively say like you shouldn't say this or you shouldn't say that i'm also kind of reminded about how in sort of feminist conversations people say oh don't call women bossy because you're really implying that they're bitchy when you're saying that and that's so difficult actually to like talk about because it's we're talking about like people's implications i guess what i'm trying to say is that it's very hard to get accuracy yeah did you have any new insights this week after our episode recording of the simone biles photo shoot i would say that the thing that i've been most interested in in is the inaccurate portrayal of things or people, right? In some ways, it's like this on the very, very sort of like dipping your toe into the realm of, um, how do I put this? Like, I don't know if it's if it's it's the right term to use, but it's it's almost as though it's the most innocent form of fake news because it's it's inaccurate, right? Like the portrayal of someone in a certain light that is not truthful to what they look like in real life is in some ways inaccurate, right? And I think that how that dehumanizes people is something that I was probably less familiar with, especially since like I've never been sort of on the opposite end where I've been photographed in a way that I was like, oh, that isn't what I look like or that isn't, that's not how I want to be portrayed because of whatever reason, right? Like the skin tone's inaccurate or they've modified it a certain way. So I think that the passage that I ended up quoting was actually the one that I felt what that was most interesting is like, this seems like on the outside looking in such a low level issue, but I think that it has broader implications. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty critical, actually, accuracy in human portrayal because magnified on a large scale, it really does affect you know, societal psyche and consciousness. It's funny that you said you've never been on the receiving end, but. Like I've been in a photo shoot, but everything has been 
it, I've never been portrayed in a way that I felt was inaccurate, right? Okay, well, this is anecdotal and it's not about race, but it is about portrayal. But I've been photographed and I've requested that my skin be retouched. Mm-hmm. And not that I wanted to be lighter skinned, like I didn't ask for lightning, but because I have acne and I have, I have scarring mm-hmm. and I've asked for that to be retouched intentionally. Mm-hmm. So, like, what does that say about me? It, it really does say that I've been so conditioned by external society that I have asked to be photoshopped inaccurately, to be portrayed inaccurately. Mm-hmm to the reality of what I actually look like. Yeah. Because you remember, I remember a, a, a while back, we talked about how I had to do like a, a shoot and I had to put makeup on or they put makeup on me. And I, I felt it was, it was like almost uncomfortable for me because I felt it was inaccurate. But I also think I understand because from a, a position within culture and society, it's way different for a man to be portrayed a certain way versus what a female's sort of uh expectation of beauty is right so maybe that's where the nuance comes in but i can i can totally i mean i'm I'm not saying that my example is analogous to seeing people of your skin color consistently portrayed inaccurately but i can have some kind of you know way of imagining what it's like to just always see images a certain way that you know to be false, but mm-hmm. that that's just the landscape. Yeah. Anything uh, else you want to add? Yeah. I'm trying to think what's the like cap off. I mean, I, I felt like this was more informative than it was actually like super heavy debate and opinion driven. Yeah. I also had a technical question that I don't know if it's super interesting or not, but like, so people don't use Shirley cards anymore, right? No. To my to my understanding, no. Like you do want to check the accuracy of color with like a gray card, or but like a because okay, yeah, that's interesting. Like gray card for exposure. Um, but I think that the Shirley card is more for color. So in photography, like you'll have a gray card that's predominantly used for like image exposure and for color. But there are color cards that are a little bit more involved, where it's not just gray; it's like a bunch of colors. I feel like the missing piece to this story is how is film better now that's a good question because i don't think film itself is at its peak which is obvious if you look at the current landscape for analog film it's definitely had better days but it's not that it's not popular within a certain subset of people right but i do question whether there'll be big broad sweeping changes in creating new film stocks that are across the board accurate for every skin tone. I almost feel as though that's a a pretty big ask. And knowing that, it's like, what are the solutions to that? Is it like, do you pick the right film stock for the right skin tone? That's one option. Do you shoot digital? Do you rely on digital tools? That's another option. Because ultimately, like, there's still a level of post-processing, even if you shoot film, for like things you have to deliver to a client. So it's not that as though people just shoot film and they leave it as is because even the way it's scanned in and whatnot will have variants. So I don't even know if the solution lies in trying to create the perfect film stock so much as understanding the importance and providing the tools to arrive at accurate colors, Mm. period. Because one thing that they did mention was that 
I want to say it was Kodak Ultramax 200 because Ultramax Color 200 had like this saying where it'll render like accurate colors if you shoot a horse in the dark. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's one way of, of, of looking at it. But, you know, maybe it's a, a more involved technical thing because I think most people don't really know how to use color accuracy tools and or have properly calibrated monitors. Like not the average person. You kind of throw on auto white balance and you let it just do its thing, myself yeah. included. Like most people will probably just default to that. Yeah, but the problem is- with that is that we're letting the computer, we're letting some kind of software decide. Yeah which is calibrated to probably yeah. white centric. Yeah. I would say that more technical shooters like that are way more professional. Like I'm like Malin will make sure that his color is super accurate. Right. He'll have all the tools and, and, and stuff for it. But what's interesting is that we were, so this is a project we're working on with dispatch and we were in the process of designing a label for it. And we ended up going with a gray label that is supposed to mimic a gray card. Oh, that is interesting. But I, I wouldn't be able to tell you with like 100% accuracy that this gray is like the right gray because there's variations. It's supposed to be a very specific like 18% gray. We talked about two things that are very actually hard to nail down, color and language. Yeah. Uh, You know what? And and in terms of language, you know, I did two interviews for Macon earlier this week. And I think that there, when you enter conversations that involve difficult subject matter, sometimes it's important for you to provide a lay of the land so that people don't misconstrue your words or your interpretation of a situation right and i think that's one thing that i don't know if it's protecting yourself and or kind of arriving at a a mutual understanding that there will be some things that might come across as off off in the sense that hey that's not how you should say it but it's not coming from a place of maliciousness Right. No, I understand what you're saying, but I also think that in those situations, and this is going to be relevant to my subject, actually, in those situations, sometimes you just have to admit that you don't have the right words or you don't know how to put something. And this is the best you know how to articulate it right now. But you're aware that it's not 100 percent capturing what you want to say. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you mean. You don't think it's defensive. I think it's more like I haven't reached a point where I have all the words to say this correctly. Mm-hmm. Okay, should we move on? Let's move on. Let's do this. So, my subject is. Kind of two news items. One is a definite recent news item, which everyone knows is my favorite thing to pick, things that are recent news. And the other is kind of just like tacking it on. Overall, I would call my subject good news in the media world because we could all use a little bit of good news. And good news in media is a very rare thing. I mean, there are so many media closures that we chose to not talk about this year. So finally, something to talk about that's not the death of a publication. What this is, is that Deadspin ex-staffers have started a new platform called Defector Media. So Deadspin is an irreverent sports-centric media platform 
owned by the parent company GO, which also owns The Onion and Jezebel, for reference. Deadspin still exists, but, but oh, pretty much only in name. So what happened, to give some context, that last fall around October, Deadspin published this piece that was critical of their parent company. And then their parent company said, hey, you guys just stick to sports, you know, stay in your lane. And then the editor-in-chief, Barry Pachesky, said no, essentially, to the parent company's request uh, and was subsequently fired for refusing to, like, mold editorial content to parent company wishes. And then in protest, the staff at Deadspin started to quit. And eventually everyone quit. There's like 20-something people quit Deadspin in protest of the editor-in-chief getting fired. Uh, and at that point, basically, the entire team said, like, Deadspin's dead. It doesn't exist anymore. But their parent company was like, no, Deadspin exists. We're just going to hire new people, et cetera. So Deadspin still exists now, but pretty much only in the name. So the exciting thing is that they have just this week announced Defector Media. There is no content yet. They've just announced their existence. They're going to launch with a podcast in August and a website in September. They are charging membership. So it's a membership. It's a paywall platform. They're charging $8 a month or $69 a year at the lowest tier. And what's interesting is that each of the 19 staffers in the new operation is a roughly 5% equity holder in the company. So they are all owners and operators. They own their own IP. They have no outside investors. Mm. Their brief mission statement that they've run is, quotation, we made this place together. We own it together. We run it together without access, without favor, without discretion, and without interference. The editor-in-chief is Tom Lay and Jasper Wang runs business operations. I'm just mentioning them too because I'm going to quote from them. Mm -hmm. So Tom Lay said, a lot of us felt adrift. If we felt that way, it's likely there are pretty significant numbers of former readers who felt that way and would be willing to pay money to have that kind of publication come back. And I'm quoting from several publications here, like The Times and GQ and Slate, I think. And then he also said in another interview, I think the more recent developments in the media landscape, the layoffs, sites deteriorating, it becoming clearer and clearer that so many publications are owned by corporations or equity firms that don't actually like the product that they own, put a lot more fire under us to just do a totally worker-owned thing. The stuff that's been going on for the last decade or so obviously isn't working. It made the most sense to us, even if it comes with far greater risk, to try and do something as far away from the current models as possible. So the reason I pick this is purely... I don't even really have an angle, which is why I almost did not pick this. But purely, I was happy to see this happen, yeah. happy to hear people articulate things that we've said to each other. And I, I would just wish them the best of luck. This is kind of the same as that podcast where I talked about the markup, where I was like yeah. really excited for this new media company doing really research based reporting, mainly funded by this generous donation. I've forgotten his name, but he's the creator of Craigslist. Yeah. yeah. One thing I think is interesting within this is that when you mentioned that it's a bad time for media, do we mean media in the traditional sense? 
Because I think that media in the sort of new age sense, I think is generally speaking quite active and there's a lot of opportunity for you to yeah. monetize your product, get people to pay for it, have visibility, have distribution in relative terms. But I think it is a very bad time for legacy publishers. Oh, and yeah. I, no, I think you're that, totally right. That's really important because I think that there's a distinction going on right now where there has to be a changing of the guard of how media companies interact with talent in that I personally see something like The Athletic, and for those unfamiliar, it's also sports reporting, where they really value the talent, right? Yeah. I think there has to be some sort of expansion of that concept where, in reality, the publishing company does a lot less in terms of setting creative, but just provides back-end resources. And this actually falls in line with the topic that I was originally going to pick maybe last week, but I didn't end up picking. And was just saying how media companies should perhaps start looking at the record label industry as a way of working with talent, meaning mm -hmm. every singular person has access to a team in a way, and mm -hmm. that team is responsible for them. But there's also things that are happening behind the scenes, and there's economies of scale for things that no one really wants to build a team for. Like, yes, as an artist, do you really care about going through the process of booking your shows or like making sure your tweets are up on time or your Instagram posts are up on time. Probably not. So why not find a way to just extract the sort of backend stuff and the back office stuff and just let the creator create. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally exactly right. When we talk about the media landscape, it, it encompasses everything, right? We're talking traditional and new age and yeah, it's been a bad year for, well, not just year, it's been a bad couple years for legacy publishers and a really, really good year for anyone who is just publishing on their own, doing independent publishing, running owner operation shops. And I think like exactly what you just said, uh, Jasper Wang in an interview said, the hardest part is still the hard part, which is having writers with talent and followings and having these writers willing to hold hands and jump together. Once they decided to do that, building the scaffolding of the business is easier than it's ever been. You know, and he's identifying the same thing is like what these ex deadspin staffers have is really great talent. They have their own followings. They're all talented writers and editors, and they've just banded together so they can have, like you said, the, the scaffolding, the, the background stuff mm -hmm. for all of them collectively. And they reference the athletic as well as a model that they look at. And I do think maybe this is the start of a new type of company being built where the talent is part of the ownership, right? We've seen a, a little bit where influencers are starting to start their own companies and they're, you know, shareholders within the company, they're, they're equity owners. Uh, yeah. And maybe that's a way to provide more long-term sustainability as well. Like both from a, a product standpoint, because you have a more vested interest in seeing this well it's not that you don't have a vested interest in seeing your company grow regardless but i think the upside is a little bit different both both from like a, a personal standpoint as well as obviously the financial side which always existed but i think the fact of the matter is is that you're changing the structure internally so that people can be more involved and reap more of the upside and also have the creative freedom which i think is something that most creatives would value quite quite a bit especially in a job where there's so much ongoing creative production needed because I think that's one thing media needs to do is like 
you can't just like set it and forget it, right? You actually have to be at a desk or out in the field doing stuff at any given moment in time. It's like every day. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just agree. There's nothing about this piece of news that I am in disagreement with, to be yeah. honest. And I think that they'll do really well. And it's proving that they will because over 10,000 people have subscribed on day one of their announcement. Probably more at this point because I just have the stat for day one. And that it's just my happy media news. Yeah. Oh, the additional tack on piece is that this is not new news, but I've just become aware of this podcast called Teenager Therapy, which mm -hmm. started two years ago in September 2018 and has experienced really great growth ever since they launched, maybe a little bit more since the pandemic. And it's co-hosted by five teenagers. They started the podcast when they were all 15 years old and they tackle these really big topics like pride and racism and just really thorny stuff. E extremely honestly, in the sense that they are unscripted, they say things that I was listening to an episode and I immediately disagreed. But I also think that that's the point, that they are just really truthful about where they're at and their feelings. And the thing that I love about it is that it's genuinely made by teenagers for teenagers. And this is just one of those instances where I think it's undeniably resonant to hear from people who are living through what you're living through. Mm -hmm. I, I think as much as you or you and I, or other companies and brands try to speak to the youth, speak to the youth, it's going to fall short in some ways. I'm not saying that they don't also consume content created by non-youth creators, but there is something unique about hearing from the people who are exactly your age and living through it. And there's, it's very hard to like replace that. And it, there's no need to replace that. Like they can live different types of content can live in like coexistence. It's interesting because yeah. your topic and that what you just mentioned has direct ramifications to basically what the future of journalism will look like. Because if legacy publishers that were conceived on a model that is outdated can no longer survive, who will come in and replace and provide some level of service, right? And I think this is where you have to kind of understand the different roads or paths that can exist within sort of media. And I think that if you look at the way local journalism has existed and the role it plays in the community, it's one of those things that I think most people take for granted, but when it's gone, it's gone. And one thing that local community journalism provides is accuracy and context. And the reason I bring this up was that there was a piece I read about this new generation. Actually, it could easily fall within the, uh, the stuff you were talking about today in terms of new media companies popping up. So this new media company called The Tribe, and that's tribe spelled with two I's, lowercase, and the rest of the letters are, are uppercase. It was started by Tiffany Walden, and it's an outlet that aims to reshape the narrative about Black Chicago. And the reason why I thought what you just mentioned is relevant, or I guess even tips into my argument, was that there was a TMZ headline. I'm, I'm 
quoting from this Neiman Reports piece, um, the TMZ headline, 1,000 people attend Chicago house party during coronavirus pandemic was worrisome to Tiffany Walden, editor-in-chief of The Tribe, a digital outlet that aims to reshape the narrative about Black Chicago. So the reason why this is interesting is that there's not a lot of context behind why they were together. And if you had dug in a little bit deeper, you'd recognize that there are certain beliefs within this part of Chicago or this community that weren't represented in the piece. And what that includes are, actually, I think this these two paragraphs are relevant. Uh, Walden reached out to freelance writer V.L. Harrison to dig into this disturbing tale of failure to social distance at a time when African Americans nationally were suffering disproportionately from the coronavirus. The tribe would do one thing none of the other outlets would initially do, talk to someone who was there. While traditional media outlets pointed fingers at the black party goers, Harrison talked to the woman, Tink Purcell, a mother of two who made the video. She found out that the party goers were memorializing friends who had died as a result of gun violence in 2018. The aha moment of the story was when Purcell and others said they did not perceive the coronavirus to be as dangerous as it is. What that passage shows is that regardless of like what you perceive on the outside as an outsider, until you really understand what's happening on the ground level, you're always going to have two perspectives with a gap. And unless someone is trying to fill that gap or reduce the size of the gap so there's a better understanding, I think there's a lot of perception and or sort of prophesizing or or trying to create a narrative around it. And I think that's where local media actually has to play a really important role in providing insight and context. Yeah, I'm actually reading the article from the tribe about that house party, and it's really good. Yeah, it, it's by this author named V.L. Harrison, and it's, which yeah, the one I referenced. Earlier. Yeah, I, yeah. But I think you're referencing an article talking about this article, and reading I, the article itself. Correct. But anyway, I, both are yeah. good. Yeah. But I agree that well, when I was thinking about teenager therapy. I was also thinking of how you always point out the importance of like an outsider perspective of like a fresh perspective. And I think really what people need is both. You need to hear from folks who are like you, who are in that exact same space, but then you also need fresh external input. And I know that that's like maybe a lot of burden in terms of media consumption, but ideally, like, I think that's what we all need. And I, I think teenager therapy fills a gap that I assume youth might have where they're looking for how to talk about tough subjects, but not coming from like NPR, you know, or not coming from like legacy publishers, just coming from themselves. Which makes me really wonder and question, like, honestly... Publishers really need to understand what value they add and or build up their business in a way that is sustainable at a smaller scale. I think that the success they had in the past is obviously it's been knocked out from underneath them. And now is the time, I think, to find ways to sustain media, knowing its importance, but also recognizing like both the sort of service side it provides and the profiteering side. Sometimes those two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Like a public service shouldn't necessarily exist to make money and be 
extremely profitable versus like a lot of people go into this realm of running businesses for the sake of profitability. So I, I, that's a really bad way of like making two very definitive competing arguments. Like I'm sure there's some sort of middle ground there, but I think that that's one thing that I think exists within the community media space is that because it doesn't have the same level of scale, it almost has to operate more as a community service. Yeah. I have nothing to really add to that point. I was going to say about scale. I mean, we talked about this when we were originally talking about the theme for unexpected connections, but I also think the enchantment of scale is falling away. People are not as enamored with things needing to be a certain size anymore. And that contributes to media going in the direction that it is. I just thought of one thing I wanted to add, which was to shout out the hosts of Teenager Therapy. They're Gail, Isaac, Thomas, Mark, and Kayla. All right. That's it for me. Anything else? No. Good place to wrap things up. Yep. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>